Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Roasting the Rich. I'm your host, Amber, and boy, it has been a wild couple of weeks. I know last time I talked about how me and my boyfriend went down to California and we were really careful. You know, we're both vaccinated. We have the booster shots. We took COVID tests before we went and visited everybody. And it turns out we went to visit my elderly grandfather who has dementia and he is in a home and my aunt brought him back to her house so that we could all um, have dinner together and turns out he had COVID. (laughs) Nobody thought to test him for it and so he gave it to my aunt, my brother, my sister. Luckily, me and my boyfriend didn't get it at all. We had no symptoms. We tested like three times after we got back like each, you know, every few days and luckily we didn't get it. But it was just kind of crazy. And it was my first COVID exposure (laughs) that I know of anyway. You know, who knows who's walking around the grocery stores these days. But it was just kind of scary. I thought I was over it. You know, COVID's been around now for a while. Boy, the second she told me grandpa had COVID, I was like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. But no, it's fine. I feel like everybody's been having a bad week. I mean, I hope you guys aren't having a bad week, but everyone I talk to lately is like, yeah, this this awful thing happened in my life and we got really bad news that uh, my boyfriend's grandpa passed away and he was really close to him and it's been hitting him really hard. And I just feel thankful that we were able to go to California and see him uh, one last time, but it's just been a really weird week. So let me know if you guys have been having weird weeks too. Maybe like the stars are in weird alignments. I don't know. I am like a recreational like, horoscope kind of person. I don't look them up. I don't know a lot about them. I just know I'm an Aquarius. That's it. But a lot of people are into the sun and the moon and the stars or whatever. So let me, maybe it's in a weird position right now. I don't know. Let me, let me know, please. <laughs> I don't want to leave you on just like such a downer note. (laughs) I did have a couple good things happen this past two weeks too. I went to uh, my first escape room and it was really fun. I went with a random group of women that I didn't know at all. So I was a little bit anxious about that. And it's kind of funny because the woman who set it up, I met at another meetup group. And so she brought all of us together. There was like 10 of us. She was our only connection, you know, like nobody knew anybody else except for her. And she didn't show up and she got stuck somewhere in a small village here in Alaska. And so she couldn't make it back. And so we all showed up looking for this girl and she wasn't even there. Other than that, it was really fun. I think having like a group activity made it a lot less awkward. We weren't just like sitting there, you know, trying to come up with conversation. The escape room was really fun. I'd never been to one before. I was not as good as I thought I was going to be. You know, when you go in, you're like, can't be that hard. I swear I lose a brain cell every day. (laughs) You know, another good thing coming up is Valentine's Day, and this is our special Valentine's episode. We're not planning on doing anything too big for Valentine's. Um, We weren't to begin with. And then with our crazy last couple weeks, it's kind of just best. I think we're just going to stay home and take it easy. But for the rest of you, I hope you have a great Valentine's Day. Unless you're one of those people that's like, I don't celebrate Valentine's Day, which I got when I was like a moody teenager. I was like, Valentine's Day is dumb. But otherwise, to me, it's like, it's just a day to celebrate love. You know, why would you be so against that? I just think it's a fun day and you can make, you know, whatever you want out of it. If you can spend time with your friends, if you don't have a relationship, if you're in a relationship, you know, you don't have to make it a big deal or you can make it a big deal, you know, do whatever you want. Let's get on to the story. So today's episode is perfect for Valentine's Day because it's all about a con man that would do 
anything for love. I found out about this case from watching I Love You, Philip Morris on Amazon Prime, and it's a very loosely biographical film starring Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor, but I started watching it, and it was such a wild ride, and I was really happy to find out it's actually a true story, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Stephen J. Russell was born September 14, 1957 in Virginia and was raised by his loving parents, Brenda and Thomas. They were devoutly religious and ran a large produce company. When Stephen was nine years old, he learned something that would change his life forever. Brenda and Thomas were not his biological parents. They had adopted him shortly after he was born. His biological mother wasn't married when Stephen was conceived and she didn't want to raise a child out of wedlock. Hello, 1960s. So Stephen's biological mother and father actually did eventually get married and have a few other children together, but they never made any attempt to contact Stephen or try to get him back. When Stephen found out he was adopted, he was understandably shaken up. You know, he felt rejected and he didn't know how to handle his emotions and he began acting out. I mean, he was only nine years old. He's just this, this little baby boy dealing with a super traumatic piece of information. He got into fights, set random things on fire, and engaged in other really minor criminal behavior to handle his emotions. But his parents weren't really sure what to do about this. It seemed like their sweet boy had turned into someone that they just didn't understand anymore. And since this was the 60s and therapy wasn't really as big of a deal as it is today, his parents decided the best course of action was to send him away to a boy's home. After Stephen kind of leveled out, he returned to the bright young man his parents knew and loved. Although he didn't just forget about his birth mother, he was able to put those feelings aside and become an extremely well-adjusted young man. In his early 20s, Russell met a beautiful secretary while working as a volunteer deputy police officer, which just reminds me of the office and Dwight and he, ugh, okay, anyway. I couldn't find very much information about his wife, whose name is Debbie in the movie, but all the information about her is literally blocked out online, so we'll just pretend that her name really is Debbie, and that's kind of all I knew about her. Uh, in the movie, she's played by Leslie Mann, who I just love so much. But anyway, they fell in love, got married, and had a daughter named Stephanie. They were your typical southern nuclear family. They were devoted Christians, and Stephen even played the organ in his local church. Everything was going really well for the Russell family until Stephen got the news in 1985 that his adoptive father had passed away. I'm sure you know grief affects everybody differently, but his father's passing prompted Stephen to really examine his sexuality. Back when he was younger and was sent to the boys' camp, Stephen had a number of quote, homosexual experiences, but couldn't admit to himself that he was gay. He was really going through it. First, he finds out he's adopted. He's shipped off to a camp where he doesn't know anybody, and the only family that he's ever known is just gone. And then he's questioning his sexuality all around nine or ten years old. I can't even imagine. He definitely needed therapy. After his father passed away, Stephen did some soul searching and realized that he was, in fact, gay, and he didn't want to hide it any longer. He and his wife agreed to an amicable divorce, and although I couldn't find any surefire information to confirm, the movie depicted Debbie as very supportive to Stephen, even long after their divorce. And I think Stephen really did love Debbie. He denies that it was a sham marriage solely to cover up his sexuality. He said that there was a sexual attraction towards women, but there was always a stronger attraction towards men. After coming out, Stephen tried to go back to his family's roots and got a job in LA as a sales manager for a food company. Unfortunately, the 90s weren't too accepting of Stephen's sexuality, even in L.A. Stephen was fired when his manager discovered he was gay, and this was a straw that broke the camel's back. Stephen was upset, understandably. He had done everything right. He was a hard worker, trying to make an honest living, and he was fired for something that 
had nothing to do with his ability to do the job. It really screwed with his head, and that's when he decided to channel all his anger towards sticking it to the man. He moved to Texas and started small, selling fake Rolex watches. Then one day, he saw the Holy Grail, a wet floor with no wet floor sign in sight. He faked a fall, as all of us dream of doing and paying off our student loans, and he got an insurance payout of $45,000, which today is almost $100,000. This all stayed out of law enforcement's radar, and Russell was living the high life. He started dating a man named James Kempel, and he loved being the one in the relationship that could afford high-end gifts and presents for his boyfriend. Unfortunately, Stephen flew a bit too close to the sun when he submitted a fake passport application for who knows what, but the passport application was reported to the police and Stephen was arrested and put in jail. After his arrest, the police dug around a little more and discovered the insurance fraud, and he was sentenced to 10 years for this charge. But Stephen couldn't spend 10 years in prison. His boyfriend James had just been diagnosed with HIV, which was a death sentence for most at the time. Miraculously, Stephen did not contract the disease. I, I say miraculously, but I'm not a scientist. I don't know how it works. It didn't sit right with Stephen that he would be rotting in a cell while his loved one was dying. If he stayed in prison for 10 years, he would never get a chance to be with James before he died. So he started plotting. Stephen observed the guard's shifts and break times and began searching for things that would aid in his escape. He somehow stumbled upon one of the rooms that they used to store female prisoners' personal belongings, and he took some sweatpants and a tie-dye sweatshirt from that room, like, hid it somewhere in his cell and just was kind of, you know, waiting to see what he could do. He knew he couldn't just walk out wearing the outfit because it didn't exactly blend in, and he knew it would be hard to pass himself off as a guard in that getup, you know? So he knew he needed something else to give himself the air of, I'm supposed to be here and you don't need to question why I'm walking out of the prison. And he's never said how, but he managed to acquire one of the radios that all the guards carried. With everything in place, Stephen waited for the guards to go on their usual smoke break, quickly put on the sweatpants and tie-dye sweater, and just walked out the door. No one stopped him at all. When he got to the door that had to be unlocked by a guard from the other side, he just waved the radio in his hand and the guards unlocked the doors to let him out. No questions asked. They thought he was an undercover police officer. They say if you look like you know where you're going, you can get anywhere, and I feel like Stephen really proved this. The first few minutes of his escape were a rush. He walked into the woods in front of the prison and said he flipped them off and he was feeling so smug, but he didn't bust out for no reason. He had things to do. He quickly made his way back to the apartment James was staying at and told them they had to leave right now to Mexico. They actually made it to Mexico too, evading the police and settling down for more than a year. Things took a turn for the worse though when James' condition deteriorated and the couple had to move back to the U.S. for him to get proper care. They didn't catch him when he came back into the country either. Stephen and James were able to settle down again, but they were getting short on cash and needed something to finance James' medical treatments. Stephen took another stab at insurance fraud, but he was caught and arrested again. At this point, he had been free for about two years. A few weeks later, James passed away while Stephen was imprisoned. His escape earned him a heavier prison sentence, but he didn't regret it. He would always cherish those extra months he had with James. The next year, in the spring of 1995, Stephen met the future love of his life, a fellow inmate named Philip Morris. Just like the movie, I love you, Philip Morris. I know that you guys were all waiting. Where's Philip? Here he is. It was lust at first sight, Stephen said. So romantic. I didn't think it was possible. I mean, we were in prison. Which I just think is funny nowadays because now it's like a reality 
TV situation. If I don't know if any of you have ever seen Love After Lockup, but I used to have a few roommates who were obsessed with it. I've never seen it, and I don't have any qualms about prisoners, you know, writing letters and getting into relationships or whatever. That's fine. Do whatever you want. But I also think it's really weird when women will write to like known serial killers and they'll they'll be like, I know you're innocent. I love you. We should get married. Like who are those people are messed up. So anyway, Stephen and Philip met in the library where coincidentally, Stephen enjoyed reading up on loopholes in criminal law. I guess he wanted to learn as much as possible, which really helped him later on. He was really good at impersonating people and it helped him to know the legal jargon and everything to make him sound more credible. Stephen saw Philip trying to reach a book on the top shelf, but he was only 5'2", so he was struggling a bit. Stephen's a foot taller, so he said, hold on, I'll get that for you. And the rest was history. Isn't that such a cute story? I mean, if you're like a murderer, you can sit in prison and rot. But these are just two gay, nonviolent prisoners. Like, good for them. So we know Stephen was in prison for insurance fraud, but Philip was serving a sentence for failing to return a rental car, which I didn't even know was a crime. But I guess it's technically stealing the car if you don't return it. But what if you just don't return it for like four days? They probably just fine you. Stephen and Philip fell hard for each other. Philip was quiet and soft-spoken, with a strong southern accent. He was intelligent, and he listened to classical music like Bach and Mozart. He loved fishing and four-wheel driving. Really, just a well-rounded man. (laughs) Stephen lovingly referred to Philip as his little mess, since he was diabetic but would go out and buy 12 donuts and eat them all at once. Which, same. Their relationship continued to grow during their time in prison, and later that year, they were both released on parole. The couple settled down in Houston, Texas, where by all accounts they planned to return to a normal life. But Stephen was in love and he was motivated to give Philip the lifestyle he deserved. He wanted to spoil Philip and he knew he needed a large salary to do so. He found a job as the chief financial officer of a major medical insurance company, NAM. I think it stands for like North American Medical Management. That sounds right. And I know what you're thinking. How did a man convicted of insurance fraud get a job with an insurance company? Well, it may have to do with the fact that his entire resume was extremely exaggerated. The resume listed many references, but each phone number somehow traced back to Stephen. He would answer and use different voices and fake accents. He was a very good imitator, good enough for the insurance company to think that he was qualified for the job. So here's where we say eat the rich, but not about Stephen. Stephen said that these health insurance companies put James and him through hell when James was fighting HIV, refusing to pay for certain treatments and all around just being really difficult to work with. And I think most of you live in the U.S., so I think we all get it. Healthcare here is really just really fucked up. When Stephen was working for the health company NAM, he watched executives badger their medical directors to put pressure on physicians to get their patients out of the hospital as soon as possible. So instead of focusing on the patient and what the patient actually needs and the care that they're receiving, they're just focused on getting them out of there quick enough so that they can just make more money, which is ridiculous. And this infuriated Stephen, and he wanted to make Nam pay for their greed. They weren't the company responsible for James' death, but clearly they weren't very different. 
Soon after Stephen was hired, he noticed a flaw with the company's accounting system that allowed him to embezzle thousands of dollars without anyone noticing. Over five months, he cashed some $800,000 into his personal accounts, which amounts to over $1.4 million today. And over these five months, Stephen and Philip were living the good life. They bought brand new Mercedes cars, jet skis, and Stephen even bought them matching Rolex watches, which range anywhere from $7 to $75,000. Does anyone else have the habit of Googling things that rich people have or like that you see on TV or something? If they're making a big deal about how much it costs, I'm always like, I need to know. And I always Google it. And I just remember it started on um, Gilmore Girls. I don't know if any of you have ever watched that, but at one point, Rory's boyfriend got her a Birkin bag and they were making such a big deal about it and she didn't understand why and she didn't know what it was. And I didn't know what it was either. So I Googled it and it was like $10,000 and that was just a shock to me. I was thinking I was still in high school and I was like, why would anybody pay that much for a bag? I don't get it. Clearly, I was not raised in a rich household. So in case anyone didn't no, Rolexes cost tens of thousands of dollars. So I googled it just to make sure and when I did, you know how sometimes it pops up with other questions that people ask and one of them was, can you shower wearing your Rolex? And so obviously I clicked on that and I guess they're not even really waterproof. Technically they're waterproof, but you shouldn't shower with them, which I get if you're wearing a $15,000, $75,000 watch, why would you want to take a shower in it? But also at the same time, I feel like if you have a $75,000 watch, you should be able to fucking, I don't know, scuba dive with it and it shouldn't be wrecked, you know? What? Jesus Christ. Anyway, so Stephen and Philip were living a glamorous lifestyle in a huge mansion, fancy cars, you know the drill. But obviously, stealing the equivalent of $1.4 million over five months is bound to get noticed pretty quickly. Apparently, Philip was completely clueless about Stephen's activities, so he was shocked when police showed up to their mansion to arrest Stephen. But come on, I mean... I feel like he had to know something was up. He knew Stephen had a background of fraud and insurance fraud and everything like that. And uh, I don't know. Stephen had been frantically trying to pack and escape, but when the cops showed up, he knew there was no escaping. He told them, hey, wait, let me get my medications. I'm diabetic. And he grabbed Philip's insulin and proceeded to inject himself with 40 doses of insulin while he was riding in the back of the cop car. When the cops finally noticed, Stephen had gone into shock and had to be taken to the emergency room. Stephen admits that this was a suicide attempt, but I don't think Philip is willing to accept that, and he still maintains that Stephen was just trying to delay his prison sentence. I think Stephen was a smart man and he knew what he was doing with the insulin, but it's okay because he survived. <laughs> and he was able to delay his prison sentence, but he had pissed off the judge in the process. Stephen was deemed an extreme flight risk, which is fair, but his bail was set at $900,000, which makes it virtually impossible for Stephen to pay. And Stephen just didn't think that this was fair. He wasn't going to run. He had a boyfriend to take care of, so he did what any sensible partner would do. He called the district clerk and impersonated the judge, ordering them to reduce his bail to only $45,000. The next day, he wrote a check and walked right out the door. A couple days later, when the check bounced, <laughs> the prison and judge finally realized what he'd done and began a manhunt for Stephen. It wasn't too hard to find him. He had gone right back to Philip. Like, he said he wasn't a flight risk. He just wanted to be with his love. Listen, people, get a man like Stephen Russell. Except maybe one that doesn't get caught. Unfortunately, the judge wasn't too impressed with his escape and sentenced him to 45 years in the maximum security Estelle unit in Huntsville, Texas. Partly for the fraud and embezzlement, but I think mostly because of his escape and impersonating the judge. 
This was not easy for Stephen, who knew Philip was angry with him for lying and now going to prison. Philip didn't need the high-class lifestyle. He would have been fine without the Rolex watches and fancy Mercedes. He just wanted to be with Stephen. But Stephen had jeopardized all of that and ended up in jail. Again! Stephen was desperate to get back to Philip, and he had a plan. The security was a bit heavier now after his first two escapes, so he wasn't able to steal any pedestrian clothes, and his phone calls were monitored so he couldn't try to impersonate anyone again. But Stephen noticed something. The medical staff's scrubs looked an awful lot like the prisoner's outfits, except the medical scrubs were green. Obviously, he didn't have access to fabric dye, but he started stockpiling green felt pens from the group art classes. Once he had enough, he squeezed the ink into a sink of water and soaked his prison overalls in the green water. He said you had to be very careful because if you wring out the water from the clothes, you could get streaks in the fabric. So I don't know how he did that. Did he just like hang out naked and and lay them out? I just don't understand how anyone didn't notice. But the next day, he waited until the woman manning the front desk was on the telephone and just walked out. Everyone assumed he was a doctor and no one questioned a thing. So at first I was confused because I don't know a lot about prison and I was under the impression that prisoners are just stuck in their cells all day and they have to be let out for like lunch and I don't know, outside time or I guess how it works is there's different blocks of cells and most of the time the prisoners can roam around freely unless you're in like solitary confinement or something like that, like extra maximum where they keep a better eye on you but otherwise in the morning they unlock the cells and you can just roam around and go to the library or do whatever you want to do so that's how he changed into the clothes without anybody noticing so steven walked out of the prison in his green getup went to the first house he could find he said he was a doctor and had been in a car accident and needed a ride into town the stranger drove him to town which don't do it. Isn't that scary? I mean, this was a few years ago, so maybe before we were all aware of the stranger danger, but what if he had been like a violent murderer or something? This guy was pretty lucky that he helped such a nice prisoner. (laughs) Steven had even wrapped plastic bags around his body under the green jumpsuit to prevent search dogs from following his scent. By the time helicopters and search teams were out looking for him, he was sipping margaritas in a bar in Houston. The police knew Stephen would follow his usual pattern and go back to Philip. The couple learned from Stephen's previous escape, though, and quickly left Texas for Biloxi, Mississippi. They lived there under the radar for almost a year, just winning money at casinos before Stephen was identified and tracked down by law enforcement. And you can imagine the media circus when they finally did track Stephen down. I mean, he had now escaped from a Texas prison three times, which is embarrassing for the state to say the least. And if there's anyone that's vindictive, it's law enforcement that's been made to look like fools. They had had it with Stephen Russell. He was never going to escape again. They threw the book at him and gave him the heaviest sentence they could, an additional 45 years on top of his first sentence, totaling 90 years. Philip was also tried for his involvement in Stephen's escape and received a much lighter sentence. During his previous sentencings, Stephen was often very jovial, kind of with a bring-it-on attitude, which I can only imagine was extremely irritating for the judges. But this time, Stephen seemed tired. Even the judges and guards noticed the difference, and they thought maybe Stephen knew that this was it, the end of his daring escapades. Both he and Philip were in prison, obviously not allowed to see each other, so there was no point in Stephen trying to escape. After all, the reason he was doing all of this was to be with the man he loved. What could he gain from leaving prison without Philip? Just more time added to his sentence? 
Months passed, and Stephen grew more and more tired. He was barely able to keep any food down, had crazy diarrhea, sorry for the TMI, and he was losing drastic amounts of weight. It finally got to the point that he was so sick he had to be transferred to the medical wing. After some tests, the doctors informed Stephen that he had tested positive for AIDS, probably contracted from his former lover, James. Over the next 10 months, Stephen withered away to a ghost of his former self. He was basically skin and bones. The prison was contacted about an experimental HIV AIDS treatment, and, you know, of course they were looking for prisoners to test on first because who cares if they're subjected to a risky treatment or not. The prison was hesitant at first to release Stephen to anyone's care because of his infamous history, but just looking at Stephen, they knew that he was long past the point that he'd be able to pull off any sort of escape, even from a place with minimal security. After Stephen slipped into a coma for four days, the prison finally put Stephen on medical parole so that he could be transferred to the medical facility for the experimental treatments. A few weeks later, Stephen passed away. At least, that's what the prison had been told. If you guessed that Stephen never had AIDS at all, you'd be correct. Stephen faked the whole thing. He said it was his hardest escape yet, which I think is kind of obvious. <laughs> he said he had to have immense discipline to not eat and make himself look sickly thin. He would take laxatives to enhance his weight loss and obviously gave him the common AIDS side effect of diarrhea. Stephen had watched his former boyfriend James die from AIDS, so he was intimately familiar with the symptoms he had to fake. You can't fake an HIV test, though. But Stephen didn't have to. You see, the prison never actually tested Stephen for HIV. Isn't that insane? Stephen used the prison typewriter to type up a medical report saying he had AIDS, somehow slipped it into a pile of legitimate medical records, and the prison never actually conducted a test to double check since Stephen just looked so sick. He then waited until he was in the medical ward, made a phone call impersonating the director of an experimental AIDS treatment, and orchestrated his release. He used the same persona to call a few weeks later and inform the prison of his death. And then he was free. But what about Philip? He was still in prison and was devastated by the news of Stephen's passing. The prison tested him for HIV, but the test was negative, and I can only imagine his relief. When Stephen was asked if he felt bad for faking HIV when his lover actually had died from it, Stephen said no, he didn't regret anything. He viewed the AIDS blast of 1998 as the safest way for everyone involved to accomplish his goal of escaping. See, in Texas, officers can prevent escape from custody using deadly force, so if he just tried to strong-arm his way out, the guards would have been justified in killing him to stop him. The only way to make it out of the prison alive was to do so non-violently, which is exactly what Stephen did every time. He said he doesn't think he's smarter than police necessarily, but he was able to manage it because police tend to think that criminals are stupid, and the guards grow complacent over time. He says anyone can escape from anywhere, so hey, you hear that inmates? You can do it, but only if you're a non-violent offender. Please, if you're a murderer, just, just stay in there. So what was Stephen's plan now that he'd escaped? Well, he wasn't going to give up on Philip just yet. Instead of fleeing Texas like he probably should have, he stayed and tried to concoct a plan to get Philip released. Poor Philip had been in prison mourning Stephen's loss. His sentence was pretty cut and dry, so he was a little surprised when he was called out of his cell to talk with his lawyer. Well, that surprise was nothing to what he felt when he walked into a room to see Stephen posing as Philip's lawyer. Yeah, Stephen had escaped prison just to walk right back in again as someone new. I just think it's insane that they didn't recognize Stephen, but apparently he was a master of imitation and could adopt new personas at the drop of a hat. And to top that off, he would always have a different look in his headshots, kind of like Bundy, so that made him harder to recognize. 
Stephen was able to get Philip transferred to the Dallas County Jail by faking some sort of warrant and visited Philip multiple times at the jail, but still no one recognized him. At this point, law enforcement was looking for him after showing up to the medical facility to collect Stephen's body, only to find out Stephen had never been a patient. And I bet they were not happy to have that conversation with their bosses. A couple weeks after his fake death, Stephen walked into a Texas bank pretending to be a Virginia millionaire and trying to get a $75,000 loan, which I kind of think was a flaw in the plan. Like, why would a millionaire need a $75,000 loan? Isn't that like nothing to a millionaire? I don't know. I'm obviously not a millionaire. Bank officials became suspicious and contacted authorities who were on the case right away. When Stephen realized the bank had called the police, he faked a heart attack and was rushed to the hospital. When he was there, he used his cell phone to call the hospital, pretending to be an FBI agent, and told them that he was no longer wanted, and the hospital just let him go. I mean, what are you going to do? Jeez. This time, he did leave Texas and fled to Florida, but his freedom didn't last long. Florida police got a tip that Stephen was hiding out in an apartment complex north of Miami, and they captured him in the parking lot as he was heading to his car. Texas police had warned Florida officers not to believe anything he tried to tell them. This was Stephen Russell. Do not let him go under any circumstances. They said he could walk out of his apartment and tell you he's Bill Clinton and you're going to want to believe him. Unfortunately for Stephen, he was caught at a bad time. In 1998, the year of Stephen's final arrest, George Bush was the governor of Texas and had just announced his campaign for presidency. He couldn't afford to have Stephen make him look like a fool by escaping again during this crucial time in his career, and Stephen suspects he pressured the court system to give him the harshest sentence they could. Despite not being a violent criminal, Stephen was sentenced to 144 years in prison, 45 years for his various scams, and 99 years for his multiple prison escapes. This was in 1998, and Stephen hasn't escaped again, yet. He's been in solitary confinement, locked in his cell for 23 hours a day for over 20 years. I personally think that solitary confinement is inhumane, and Stephen said in interviews that it has definitely taken a toll on him, physically and mentally. He's 64 years old now, bald, with bad hips and a bad back. About four years ago, he was diagnosed with recurrent major depression, and his body is deteriorating from the discomfort of his surroundings. He's kept on death row despite not being having sentenced to death. He's seen many, many suicides over the years and says that if it wasn't for the love of his family and friends, he probably wouldn't be here today. He reads a lot to keep himself busy and is allowed extremely monitored visits, where he has to stay behind a thick wall of glass. Stephen thinks solitary confinement should only be reserved for the most violent of criminals, and I agree. He's a strong advocate for a prison system that actually works to rehabilitate prisoners and says that solitary confinement only breaks them down, and being broken in this way just makes it harder for them to reintegrate into society. You might think solitude would only further motivate him to escape, but he said he doesn't have any reason to anymore. All of his escapes were out of his love for Philip Morris, who hasn't contacted him since his final sentencing. Stephen understands why Philip would keep his distance and doesn't ever want to do something that would hurt him again, which includes escaping. Philip himself was released from prison in 2003, and he would go on to work with Jim Carrey and Ewan McGregor in the consultant role for I Love You, Philip Morris. Stephen says he's seen bits of the movie during interviews when he's allowed out of his cell, but he hasn't seen the full thing. But from what he's seen, he says that the movie is pretty accurate and captures him pretty well. I think certain things are definitely dramatized, but when I was doing my research, I was pretty surprised to find that a lot of it was actually completely accurate. 
I think if you have any common sense, you might be doubting Stephen a little bit when he says that, no, he's not planning on escaping, but he actually gives his daughter Stephanie all the credit for his change in behavior. She travels several times a year from the East Coast to visit him, even though they aren't allowed even so much as a hug. She helps Stephen realize that his escapes weren't just hurting him, they were hurting her as well. He's had time to think about how he ended up in prison and doesn't deny that he belongs there, but he says he doesn't belong in solitary confinement. Plus, he says he couldn't physically escape even if he wanted to. His spine is so deteriorated that he has to use a wheelchair whenever he's allowed to leave his cell. But he's also made a few cheeky comments in interviews when asked when he'll attempt his escape. One fun fact is that all of his escapes have happened on Friday the 13th, which I think just makes the prisons look even more stupid. Like, if you know that this man escapes on Friday the 13th, why not lock him up, like, extra tight when Friday the 13th is on the way? But, you know, oh well. During one interview, a reporter mentioned this and then asked, like, oh, when's the next Friday the 13th you're going to escape? And Steven said, without any hesitation, November. Which makes me think that the wheels still are turning in his head. I think people like him, as intelligent and as smart as him, and as manipulative, have a hard time just shutting off that part of their brain. In another interview, he revealed that they change his cells every week, so they just switch him from cell to cell to try to prevent him, I guess, from getting too knowledgeable about one area, but he said the way he sees it, they just really want their escape artist to get to know the whole building. (laughs) Otherwise, though, he's been a model prisoner and says it, it makes no sense for him to try to escape after serving so much time. He's considered for parole every year, but so far he hasn't had any luck. His next parole hearing is in November 2022, so we'll just have to wait and see what happens. There's a Facebook group in support of Steven being let out, and they think that it's pretty likely he'll be put on parole, given his age and his health, and also, you know, that he's been in there for over 20 years doing fine. When asked what he would do to prevent prisoners from escaping, Steven said, First off, I'd keep the front door locked. If they need further advice, they can hire me as a consultant after I'm paroled. And with that piece of advice, we're coming to the end of our episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that story. I thought it was the perfect one to do for Valentine's Day. I guess it's kind of sad that Steven and Philip didn't end up together, but you also have the love between Steven and his daughter, and hopefully we'll see them reunited in the next couple years. If you want to see what Steven and Philip and everyone looked like, I'll be posting some pictures on Instagram at RoastingTheRichPod. And if you have any comments or questions or personal stories, you can email them to RoastingTheRichPod at gmail.com. And other than that, that's the end of the episode. And I'll be seeing you guys in a couple weeks. Bye.